Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 52 In which Lord Steyne shows himself in a most amiable light. When Lord Steyne was feeling benevolent, he did nothing by halves, and he was generous to the Crawleys. He extended his goodwill to little Rawdon, pointing out to the boy's parents the necessity of sending him to a public school. His father objected that he was not rich enough. His mother said that Briggs was a capital mistress for him, and it brought him on, as indeed was the fact, well in English, the Latin rudiments and general learning. But all these objections disappeared before the perseverance of the Marquis of Steyne. His lordship was one of the governors of Whitefriars College, which had been a Cistercian convent in old days. Obstinate heretics used to be brought there convenient for burning. Henry VIII seized upon the monastery. Finally, a great merchant bought the house and land and established a famous foundation hospital for old men and children, and around it grew a school. It was originally intended for the sons of the poor and deserving, but the noble governor selected all sorts of boys. To get an education for nothing, with a future livelihood in the church assured, was so excellent a scheme that some of the richest people did not disdain it, and great men sent their sons to profit from it, while other great noblemen sent the children of their close servants, so that a lad entering this school might mingle with every variety of youthful society." Colonel Crawley, though his chief memories of learning were of the floggings which he received at Eton, had a decent reverence for classical learning, and was glad to think that his son was to have an opportunity of becoming a scholar. And although his boy was his chief solace and companion, and endeared to him by a thousand small ties about which he did not speak to his wife, who showed the utmost indifference to their son, yet Rawdon agreed to part with him for the sake of the lad's welfare. He did not know how fond he was of the child until he went away. Then he felt more downcast than he cared to admit, far sadder than the boy himself, who was happy enough to enter a new career and find companions of his own age. Becky burst out laughing when the colonel tried clumsily to express his sorrow. The poor fellow felt that his dearest pleasure and closest friend was taken from him. He looked wistfully at the little vacant bed in his dressing room where the child used to sleep. He tried in vain to walk in the park without him. He would go and sit for hours, long, long hours, with his good-natured sister-in-law, Lady Jane, and talk to her about the hundred good qualities of the child. Young Rawdon's aunt was very fond of him as was her little girl, who wept copiously when her cousin departed. The elder Rawdon was thankful for the fondness of mother and daughter. His very best feelings came out in the artless parental outpourings in which he indulged in their sympathetic presence. As a result, Lady Jane felt sincere regard for him. Becky, on the other hand, laughed bitterly at Jane's feelings and softness, and the other's gentle nature revolted at her sister-in-law's callous behavior. It estranged Rawdon from his wife more than he knew or acknowledged to himself. She did not care about the estrangement. She looked upon him as her errand-man and humbled slave. He might be depressed or sulky, and she did not notice, or only treated it with a sneer. She was busy thinking about her position, her pleasures, or her advancement in society. It was Honest Briggs who made up the little kit for the boy to take to school. Dolly, the housemaid, faithful in spite of unpaid wages, blubbered in the passage when he went away. Becky, however, 
did not offer to kiss him. Nor did the child try to embrace her, but gave a kiss to old Briggs and consoled her by pointing out that he was to come home on Saturdays. Becky would not allow Rawdon to take the son to school in the carriage. As they rolled away in a cab, her carriage rattled off to the park. She was chattering and laughing with a score of young dandies by the serpentine as the father and son entered the school. Rawdon left the child and came away with a sadder, purer feeling in his heart than perhaps that poor, battered fellow had ever known. He walked home very dismally and dined alone with Briggs. He was grateful for her love and watchfulness over the boy. His conscience smote him that he had borrowed Briggs' money and deceived her. They talked about little Rawdon a long time, for Becky only came home to dress and go out to dinner. Then he went to drink tea with Lady Jane and tell her how little Rawdon went off like a trump and how he was to wear a gown and knee breeches and how young Blackball, Jack Blackball's son of the old regiment, had taken him in charge and promised to be kind to him. In the course of a week, young Blackball had made little Rawdon his fag, shoeblack and breakfast toaster, initiated him into the mysteries of the Latin grammar, and thrashed him three or four times, but not severely. The little chap's good-natured face won his way. He only got that degree of beating, which was, no doubt, good for him. And as for blacking shoes, toasting bread, and fagging in general, were these offices not deemed necessary to every English gentleman's education? Our business does not lie with Master Rawdon's life at school. Otherwise, this tale might be carried to indefinite length. The colonel went to see his son a short time afterwards and found the lad sufficiently well and happy, grinning in his little black gown and breeches. His father wisely tipped Blackball a sovereign and secured that young gentleman's goodwill towards his fag. As a protégé of the great Lord Steyne and son of a colonel, the school authorities looked kindly on the child. He had plenty of pocket money, which he spent in treating his comrades royally to raspberry tarts, and he was often allowed to come home on Saturdays to his father, who always made a jubilee of that day. When free, Rawdon would take him to the play. On Sundays he went to church with Briggs and Lady Jane and his cousins. His father marveled over his stories about school and fights and fagging. Before long, he knew the names of all the masters and the principal boys. He invited little Rawdon's friend from school and made both the children sick with pastry and oysters after the play. When his son showed him the Latin grammar, he said gravely, oh, Stick to it, my boy. There's nothing like a good classical education. Nothing. Becky's contempt for her husband grew greater every day. Do what you like. Go psalm singing with Lady Jane, only don't expect me to busy myself with the boy. I have your interests to attend to. I should like to know where you would be now if I had not looked after you. Nobody wanted poor Rawdon at their parties. Becky was often asked without him now. Little Rawdon being disposed of, Lord Steyne, who took such a parental interest in the family, thought that their expenses might be curtailed by the departure of Miss Briggs. It has been told in a former chapter how that nobleman had given Becky money to pay off her little debt to Miss Briggs, who, however, still stayed so that my lord came to the painful conclusion that Mrs. Crawley had made some other use of the money. Lord Steyne was not so rude as to impart his suspicions to Mrs. Becky, who might have a thousand painful reasons for disposing otherwise of the generous loan, but he determined to learn the real state of the case, and began inquiries in a most cautious and delicate manner. First he pumped Miss Briggs, well, that was not difficult. With a very little encouragement, she would pour out everything. And one day, when Mrs. Rawdon had gone out to drive, as his lordship's servant easily learned at the stables, my lord dropped in at Curzon Street, asked Briggs for a cup of coffee, 
told her that he had good accounts of the little boy at school, and in five minutes learned that Mrs. Rawdon had given her nothing except a black silk gown, for which Miss Briggs was immensely grateful. He laughed inwardly. Rebecca had told him a most detailed account of Briggs' delight at receiving her money and how she had invested it. He had the curiosity, then, to ask Miss Briggs about the state of her private affairs, and she told him candidly how Miss Crawley had left her a legacy, how her relatives had had part of it, how Colonel Crawley had put out another portion, for which he had the best security and interest, and how Mrs. and Mr. Rawdon had kindly asked Sir Pitt to invest the rest for her when he had time. My lord asked how much the colonel had already invested for her, and Miss Briggs told him that the sum was six hundred pounds. But Briggs, immediately repenting of her frankness, begged my lord not to tell Crawley of her confessions. The colonel was so kind, he might be offended and pay back the money, for which he could not get such good interest elsewhere. Lord Stane, laughing, promised never to divulge their conversation. What an accomplished little devil it is, thought he. What a splendid actress. She almost coaxed a second sum out of me the other day. <laughs> she beats all the women I have ever seen. They are babies compared to her. I am a greenhorn myself and a fool in her hands. She is unsurpassable in lies. His lordship's admiration for Becky rose. Getting the money was nothing but getting double the sum she wanted and paying nobody was magnificent. And Crawley, my lord thought, Crawley is not such a fool as he looks. Nobody would suppose from his manner that he knew anything about this money business, and yet he put her up to it, and has spent the money, no doubt. In this opinion, my lord was mistaken. But it influenced his behavior towards Colonel Crawley, whom he had begun to treat with even less respect than before. It never entered his head that Rebecca might be filling her own purse, and perhaps he judged Colonel Crawley by his own long experience of weak husbands. My lord had bought so many men during his life that he may be pardoned for supposing that he had found the price of this one. Next time he met Becky alone. Lord Steyne complimented her good-humouredly on her cleverness in getting more than the money which she required. Becky was only a little taken aback. She did not usually tell falsehoods, except when compelled, but in great emergencies she lied very freely, and in an instant she was ready with another neat, plausible story. Her previous statement was a wicked falsehood. She confessed it. But, my lord, you don't know all I suffer in silence. You see me gay and happy, and do not know what I endure when there is no protector near me. It was my husband, by threats and the most savage treatment, who forced me to ask for that money. It was he who made me account for it as I did. He took the money. He told me he had paid Miss Briggs. I did not dare to doubt him. Pardon the wrongs of a desperate man, and pity a miserable, miserable woman. <laughs> she burst into tears. Persecuted virtue never looked more bewitchingly wretched. They had a long conversation, driving round and round the Regent's Park in Mrs. Crawley's carriage, and the upshot was that when Becky came home, she flew to Briggs with a smiling face and announced that she had some very good news for her. Lord Steyne had acted in the noblest and most generous manner. He was always thinking how he could do good. Now that little Rawdon was gone to school, a dear companion was no longer necessary to her. She was grieved beyond measure to part with Briggs, but she needed to economize, and she knew that dear Briggs would be far better provided for by her generous patron than in her humble home. Mrs. Pilkington, the housekeeper at Gauntley Hall, was growing exceedingly old and feeble. She was not equal to the work of superintending that vast mansion, and needed a successor. It was a splendid position.' 
The family did not go to Gauntley once in two years. At other times, the housekeeper was the mistress of this magnificent mansion, was visited by the clergy and the most respectable people of the county, was the lady of Gauntley, in fact. Briggs might go down on a visit to Mrs. Pilkington and see whether she would like to succeed her. What words can paint the ecstatic gratitude of Briggs? All she asked was that little Rawdon should be allowed to come and see her at the hall. Becky promised this. Anything. She ran up to her husband when he came home and told him the joyful news. Rawdon was deuced glad. The weight was off his conscience about poor Briggs's money. She was provided for at any rate. But his mind was disquieted. He told Little Southdown what Lord Steyne had done, and the young man eyed Crawley with an air which surprised him. He told Lady Jane, and she too looked awed and alarmed, as did Sir Pitt. She is too clever and gay to be allowed to go to parties without a companion, both said. You must go with her, Rawdon, wherever she goes, and you must have somebody with her, one of the girls from Queen's Crawley, perhaps. Somebody Becky should have. But in the meantime, Honest Briggs and her bags were packed, and she set off on her journey. And so two of Rawdon's out-sentinels were in the hands of the enemy. Sir Pitt went and expostulated with Rebecca about the dismissal of Briggs. In vain she pointed out to him how necessary Lord Steyne's protection was for her poor husband, how cruel it would be to deprive Briggs of the position offered. This did not satisfy Sir Pitt, and he had something very like a quarrel with his once-admired Becky. He spoke of the honour and reputation of the family, expressed indignation at her receiving wild young men of fashion, and Lord Steyne himself, whose carriage was always at her door, and whose constant presence made the world talk. He implored her to be more prudent. Lord Steyne was a man whose attentions would compromise any woman, he begged. He commanded his sister-in-law to be watchful. Becky promised everything Pitt wanted. But Lord Steyne came to her house as often as ever, and Sir Pitt's anger increased. As Lord Steyne's visits continued, Sir Pitt's ceased. His wife wanted to refuse the invitation to the Sherrard night, but Sir Pitt thought it was necessary to accept it, as His Royal Highness would be there. Although he went to the Sherrard party, Sir Pitt left very early with his wife— Becky hardly spoke to him or noticed her sister-in-law. Pitt Crawley declared that her behavior was monstrously indecorous and reproved his brother Rawdon severely for allowing his wife to take part. Rawdon said she should not join in any more such amusements. Indeed, he had already become a watchful and exemplary domestic character. He left off his clubs and billiards. He took Becky out to drive. He went laboriously with her to all her parties. Whenever my lord Steyne called, he was sure to find the colonel there, and when Becky received invitations for herself, he ordered her to refuse them, and his manner enforced obedience. Little Becky, to do her justice, was charmed with Rawdon's gallantry. If he was surly, she never was. She had always a kind smile for him, and was attentive to his pleasure and comfort. It was the early days of their marriage over again, the same good humour, merriment, and artless confidence. "'How much pleasure it is,' she would say, "'to have you by my side in the carriage, rather than that foolish old Briggs. How happy we should always be if we only had the money!' He fell asleep after dinner in his chair. He did not see the face opposite, haggard, weary, and terrible. It lighted up with fresh smiles when he woke. He wondered that he had ever had suspicions. Those doubts and surly misgivings which had been gathering in his mind were mere idle jealousies. She was fond of him, and as for her shining in society, it was no fault of hers. She was made to shine. If she would only like the boy, Rawdon thought. But the mother and son 
never could be brought together. And it was at this point that the incident occurred which was mentioned in the last chapter, and the unfortunate colonel found himself a prisoner. Chapter 53. A Rescue and a Catastrophe Rawdon drove on to Mr. Moss, the bailiff's mansion in Cursitor Street, and was duly introduced into that dismal place. Morning was breaking over the hostops of Chancery Lane as the rattling cab woke up the echoes there. Rawdon was welcomed in by Mr. Moss, his travelling companion and host, who cheerfully asked him if he would like a glass of something warm after his drive. The colonel was not so depressed as some men would be to find themselves in a sponging house, to be confined there until payment was arranged, for in truth he had been a lodger at Mr. Moss's once or twice before. We have not thought it necessary to mention these trivial little incidents, but they must frequently occur in the life of a man who lives on nothing a year. Upon his first visit to Mr. Moss, the colonel— then a bachelor, had been freed by the generosity of his aunt. On the second mishap, little Becky had borrowed money from Lord Southdown and had coaxed her husband's creditor, who was her shawl and gown seller, to take Rawdon's promissory note for the rest. So on both these occasions, the capture and release had been conducted with gallantry on all sides, and Moss and the colonel were therefore on the very best of terms. "'You'll find your old bed, Colonel, and everything comfortable,' Mr. Moss said. "'It's kept aired, and by the best of company, too. "'It was slip in the night afore last by the Honourable Captain Famish of the 50th Dragoons. "'I've got a doctor of divinity upstairs, five gents in the coffee room, "'and Mrs. Moss has a table d'hote at half-past five, "'and a little cards or music afterwards, when we shall be most happy to see you.' "'I'll ring if I want anything,' said Rodden, and went quietly to his bedroom. He was an old soldier, not to be shaken by little shocks of fate. A weaker man would have instantly sent a letter to his wife. "'But what is the use of disturbing her night's rest?' he thought. "'Time enough to write to her when she has had her sleep.' "'It's only a hundred and seventy pounds, and the deuce is in it if we can't raise that.' And so— Thinking about little Rawdon, the colonel turned into the bed lately occupied by Captain Famish and fell asleep. It was ten o'clock when he woke up. A youth brought him a fine silver dressing case so that he might shave. Indeed, Mr. Moss's house, though somewhat dirty, was splendid throughout. There were dirty gilt cornices with dingy yellow satin hangings to the barred windows, vast and dirty gilt picture frames surrounding works by the greatest masters, works which were sold and bought over and over again. The colonel's breakfast was served to him in dingy and gorgeous silver-plated ware. Miss Moss, a dark-eyed maid in curl papers, appeared with the teapot, and smiling, asked the colonel how he had slept. She brought him the morning post, which contained a brilliant account of Lord Steyne's festivities and of the beautiful and accomplished Mrs. Rawdon Crawley. After a lively chat with this lady, Colonel Crawley called for pens and paper and wrote without many misgivings. Dear Becky, I hope you slept well. Don't be frightened if I don't bring you in your coffee. Last night, as I was coming home smoking, I met with an accident. I was nabbed by Moss of Cursiter Street, the same that had me two years ago. Miss Mott brought in my tea, and, well, she has grown very fat and has her stockings down at heel. Huh, so it's a hundred and seventy. Please send me some clothes and my desk. I have seventy in it, and as soon as you get this drive... Up to the moneylenders, offer him seventy-five down and ask him to renew. If he won't stand it, take my ticker and anything as you can spare and send them to the pawnbroker. We must, of course, have the sum tonight. We can't let it stand over as tomorrow's Sunday. The beds here are not very clean, and there might be other things out against me. I'm glad it ain't Rotten's Saturday for coming home. God bless you. Yours in haste. R.C. P.S. Make haste and come. 
This letter was sent by a messenger, and Rawdon, having seen him depart, went into the courtyard and smoked a cigar with a tolerably easy mind. Three hours, he calculated, would be the most time required before Becky should arrive and open his prison doors, and he passed these pretty cheerfully in smoking, in reading the paper, and in the coffee room with an acquaintance, Captain Walker. But the day passed, and no messenger returned. No Becky. Moss's tabli d'hote was served at half-past five, when such of the gentlemen lodgers as could afford the banquet enjoyed it in the splendid front parlour. Miss M, Miss Hem, as her papa called her, appeared, without her curl papers, and Mrs. Hem served a prime boiled leg of mutton and turnips, which the colonel ate with a very faint appetite. In the midst of this meal, however, the doorbell was heard. The messenger had returned with a bag, a desk, and a letter. "'No ceremony, Colonel, I beg,' said Mrs. Moss, with a wave of her hand, and he opened the letter rather tremulously. It was a beautiful letter, highly scented, on pink paper. "'Mon pauvre cher petit,' Mrs. Crawley wrote, "'I could not sleep one wink for thinking of what had become of my odious old monstre, "'and only got to rest in the morning after sending for Mr. Blanche, "'for I was in a fever, who gave me a draught and left orders with Finette "'that I should not be disturbed on any account.' "'so that your messenger remained in the hall "'for some hours waiting my bell. "'You may fancy my state when I read "'your poor, dear, old, ill-spelt letter. "'Ill as I was, I instantly called for the carriage, "'and as soon as I was dressed, "'though I couldn't drink a drop of chocolate, "'I drove like the wind to the moneylenders. "'I saw him, I wept, I cried, "'I fell at his odious knees.' Nothing would mollify the horrid man. He would have all the money, he said, or keep my poor monstre in prison. I drove home with the intention of paying that visit to the pawnbroker, when every trinket I have should be at your disposal, though they would not fetch a hundred pounds, and found Milor there with the old Bulgarian sheep-face who had come to compliment me on last night's performance. I went down on my knees to Milor, told him we were going to pawn everything, and begged him to give me two hundred pounds. He pished and shod in a fury, told me not to be such a fool as to pawn, and said he would lend me the money. He promised he would send it to me tomorrow morning, when I will bring it to my poor old monster with a kiss from his affectionate Becky. I am writing in bed. Oh, I have such a headache and such a heartache. When Rawdon read over this letter, he looked so red and savage that the company saw that bad news had reached him. All his suspicions returned. She would not even go out and sell her trinkets to free him. She could laugh whilst he was in prison. Who had put him there? Wenham had walked with him. Was there... He could hardly bear to think of what he suspected. He hurried into his room, opened his desk, wrote two lines, which he directed to Sir Pitt or Lady Crawley, and bade the messenger deliver them at once. In the note, he begged his dear brother and sister, for the sake of his child and his honour, to relieve him from his difficulty. He was in prison. He needed a hundred pounds to set him free. He entreated them to come. Then he went back to the dining-room and called for more wine. He laughed and talked with a strange boisterousness, and went on drinking for an hour, listening all the while for a carriage. At the end of that time, wheels were heard whirling up to the gate. The janitor led a lady into the back parlour and called, "'Colonel, you're wanted!' Rawdon came from the dining-room, a flare of coarse light following him into the apartment where the lady stood, very nervous. "'It is I, Rawdon.' she said. It is Jane. Rawdon was quite overcome by that kind voice. He ran up, caught her in his arms, gasped out some inarticulate words of thanks, and fairly sobbed on her shoulder. She did not know why. The bills were quickly settled. Jane happily carried Rawdon away from the bailiff's house, and they went homewards in a cab. 
Pitt was gone to a parliamentary dinner, she said, when the note came, and so, dear Rawdon, I came myself. And she put her kind hand in his. Rawdon thanked his sister a hundred times, with an ardor of gratitude which touched and almost alarmed her. Oh, said he, you don't know how I'm changed since I've known you, and, and little Roddy. You see, I want, I want to, to be. He did not finish the sentence, but she could interpret it. And that night, after he left her, as she sat by her little boy's bed, she prayed humbly for Rawdon. On leaving her, Rawdon walked home rapidly. It was nine o'clock at night. He ran across the streets and the great squares of Vanity Fair and came up breathless opposite his own house. He started back and fell against the railings, trembling as he looked up. The drawing-room windows were blazing with light. She had said that she was in bed and ill. He stood there for some time. Then he took out his key and let himself into the house. He could hear laughter in the upper rooms. He went silently up the stairs, leaning against the banisters. Nobody was stirring in the house besides. All the servants had been sent away. Rawdon heard laughter and singing. Becky was singing a snatch of the song of the night before. A hoarse voice shouted, Brava! Brava! It was Lord Steyne. Rawdon opened the door and went in. A little table with a dinner was laid out. Stane was hanging over the sofa on which Becky sat. She was brilliantly dressed, her arms and fingers sparkling with bracelets and rings and the diamonds on her breast which Stane had given her. He had her hand in his and was bowing to kiss it when Becky started up with a faint scream as she caught sight of Rawdon's white face. At the next instance, she tried a smile as if to welcome her husband, and Stane rose up, grinding his teeth, pale and with fury in his looks. He, too, attempted a laugh and came forward, holding out his hand. Oh, one, come back. How'd you do, Crawley? He said, the nerves of his mouth twitching as he tried to grin. There was that in Rawdon's face which caused Becky to fling herself before him. I am innocent, Rawdon. Before God, I am innocent. She clutched at his coat, his hands. Her own were covered with serpents, rings, and baubles. Say I am innocent, she said to Lord Steyne. But he thought a trap had been laid for him and was as furious with the wife as with the husband. You innocent! Damn you! You innocent! Why, every trinket you have on your body is paid for by me. I have given you thousands of pounds, which this bullying fellow has sold you for. Innocence! By God, don't think to frighten me. Make way, sir, and let me pass. Lord Steyne seized up his hat, and with flame in his eyes and looking his enemy fiercely in the face, marched upon him, never for a moment doubting that the other would give way. But Rawdon sprang out and seized him by the neckcloth until Stane, almost strangled, writhed and bent under his arm. You lie, you dog, you coward and villain. And he struck the Marquis twice over the face with his open hand and flung him bleeding to the ground. It was all done before Rebecca could interpose. She stood trembling before him. She admired her husband, strong, brave, and victorious. Come here, he said. She came up at once. Take off those things. Trembling, she pulled the jewels from her arms and the rings from her shaking fingers and held them in a heap. Throw them down, he said, and she dropped them. He tore the diamond ornament from her breast and flung it at Lord Steyne. It cut him on his bald forehead. Stain wore the scar to his dying day. Come upstairs, Rawdon told his wife. Oh, don't kill me, Rawdon, she said. He laughed savagely. I want to see if that man lies about the money as he has about me. Has he given you any? No, said Rebecca. That is, give me your keys. Rebecca gave him all the keys but one, hoping he would not notice its absence. It belonged to the little desk which Amelia had given her, and which she kept in a secret place. 
But Rawdon flung open boxes and wardrobes, throwing the contents here and there, and at last he found the desk. She was forced to open it. It contained papers, love letters many years old, small trinkets and women's memoranda, and it contained a pocketbook with banknotes. Some of these were dated ten years past, and one was quite fresh, a note for a thousand pounds from Lord Stane. Did he give you this? Rodden said. Yes, she answered. I'll send it back to him today, Rodden said, for day had dawned again, and I will pay Briggs and some of the debts. You will let me know where I shall send the rest to you. You might have spared me a hundred pounds, Becky, out of all this. I have always shared with you. I, I am I'm innocent, said Becky, and he left her without another word. What were her thoughts when he left her? She remained for hours after he was gone, sitting alone on the bed's edge, the sunshine pouring into the room. The drawers were open and their contents scattered about, dresses and feathers, scarves and trinkets lying in a wreck. Her hair was falling over her shoulders, her gown was torn. She heard him go downstairs and the door slamming. She knew he would never come back. He was gone. Forever. Would he kill himself, she thought? No, not until after he had met and fought Lord Stane. She thought of her long past life. Oh, how dreary it seemed. How miserable, lonely, and profitless. Should she take laudanum and end it? Have done with all hopes, schemes, debts, and triumphs? The French maid found her sitting in the midst of her miserable ruins with clasped hands and dry eyes. The woman was in Stain's pay. Mon Dieu, madame, what has happened? What had happened? Was she guilty or not? She said not, but who could tell if truth came from those lips, or if that corrupt heart was in this case pure? All her lies and selfishness and wiles, all her wit and genius had come to this bankruptcy. The woman closed the curtains and persuaded her mistress to lie down on the bed. Then she went below and gathered up the trinkets that were still lying on the floor. Chapter 54 Sunday After the Battle Sir Pitt Crawley's mansion was just awakening as Rawdon, in his evening costume, which he had now worn two days, walked up the steps and entered his brother's study. Lady Jane was up in the nursery helping her children dress and listening to their morning prayers, as she did every day. Rawdon sat down in the study before the baronet's table, set out with orderly blue books and letters, bills and dispatch boxes— a book of family sermons, from which Sir Pitt was in the habit of reading to his family on Sundays, lay ready on the table, and by the sermon book was the Observer newspaper. His valet had taken the opportunity of looking at it before he laid it by his master's desk, and he had read a flaming account of festivities at Gaunt House, with the names of all the distinguished people invited by the Marquis of Steyne to meet His Royal Highness. Poor Rawdon took up the paper and began to try and read it until his brother should arrive, but he did not know in the least what he was reading. The government news and appointments passed in a haze before Rawdon as he sat waiting. Punctually at nine, Sir Pitt appeared, fresh and shaved, in a starched cravat and a grey flannel dressing gown, a model of neatness and propriety. He started when he saw poor Rawdon in his tumbled clothes, with bloodshot eyes and unkempt hair. He thought his brother was not sober and had been out all night. "'Good gracious, Rawdon,' he said. "'What brings you here at this time of the morning? Why ain't you at home?' "'Home,' said Rawdon, with a wild laugh. <laughs> "'I'm not drunk, Pitt. Shut the door. I want to speak to you.' Pitt closed the door and sat down opposite him. Pitt, it's all over with me, the colonel said. I'm done. I always said it would come to this, 
the baronet cried peevishly. I've warned you a thousand times. I can't help you any more. Every shilling of my money is tied up. Even the hundred pounds that Jane took you last night were promised to my lawyer tomorrow morning. I don't mean to say that I won't assist you ultimately, but as for paying your creditors in full, I might as well hope to pay the national debt. You must... It's not money I want, Rodden broke in. Never mind what happens to me. What is the matter, then? said Pitt, somewhat relieved. It's the boy, said Rodden huskily. Promise me that you will take charge of him when I'm gone. Your dear wife has always been good to him, and he's fonder of her than he is of his... Oh, damn it! Look here, Pitt. I wasn't brought up like a younger brother, but was always encouraged to be extravagant and idle. Otherwise, I might have been quite a different man. I didn't do my duty with the regiment so bad. You know how I was thrown over about the money, and who got it? Your marriage was your own doing, not mine. That's over now, said Rodden, with a groan. Good God! Is she dead? Sir Pitt said, in genuine alarm. I wish I was, Rawdon replied. If it wasn't for little Rawdon, I'd have cut my throat this morning. And that damn villain's too. Sir Pitt instantly guessed that Lord Steyne was the person whose life Rawdon wished to take. The colonel told his brother briefly, in broken accents, what had happened. It was planned between that scoundrel and her, he said. I was taken by the bailiffs as I was going out of his house when I wrote to her for money. She said she was ill in bed and put me off. And when I got home, I found her in diamonds and sitting with that villain alone. He described his conflict with Lord Steyne. To an affair of that nature, of course, he said, there was only one result, and he was going away to make arrangements for the duel which must follow. And as it may end fatally with me, Rodden said with a broken voice, and as the boy has no mother, I must leave him to you and Jane, Pitt. Promise to be his friend. The elder brother, much affected, shook Rodden's hand. I will, upon my honour, he said. Then Rawdon took out the little pocket-book which he had discovered in Becky's desk and drew from it a bundle of notes. Here's six hundred. I want you to give the money to Briggs, who lent it to us and who was kind to the boy. And here's some more. I've only kept back a few pounds, which Becky may as well have, to get on with. As he spoke, his hands shook so much that the pocket-book fell and out of it came the thousand-pound note which had been the last of Becky's winnings. Pitt stooped and picked it up, amazed. Not that, Rodden said. I hope to put a bullet into the man whom that belongs to. He had thought to himself it would be a fine revenge to wrap a bullet in the note and kill Stain with it. The brother shook hands once more and parted. Lady Jane was waiting in the dining-room. As the men left the study, she held out her hand to Rawdon and said she was glad he was come to breakfast, though she could see by his haggard, unshorn face that there was very little question of him staying. Rawdon muttered some excuses about an engagement, squeezing hard her timid little hand. Her imploring eyes read calamity in his face, but he went away without another word. Nor did Sir Pitt give her any explanation. He kissed his children in his usual frigid manner, and their mother held their hands as they knelt down to prayers. Rawdon Crawley, meanwhile, hurried on to Gaunt House and knocked at the door. The porter, who answered, was scared by the colonel's disheveled appearance and barred the way, but Rawdon only asked him to take his card to Lord Steyne and to say that Colonel Crawley would be at the Regent Club after one o'clock, not at home. He strode away and took a cab to Knightsridge Barracks. All the bells were tolling as he reached that place. Troops of schools were on their march to church, and the shiny pavements were thronged with people out upon their Sunday pleasure. But the colonel was much too busy to take any heed. 
Arriving at Knightsbridge, he speedily went to the room of his old comrade, Captain McMurdo. Captain McMurdo, a veteran officer and Waterloo man greatly liked by his regiment, was enjoying the morning in bed after a supper party. His room was hung round with boxing, sporting, and dancing pictures presented to him by comrades as they retired from the regiment. As he was now nearly fifty, he had a singular gallery. He was one of the best shots in England and one of the best riders. Indeed, he and Crawley had been rivals when the latter was in the army. To look at, he was a venerable, bristly warrior, with a little close-shaved head, a red face and nose, and a great dyed moustache. When Rawdon told the captain he wanted a friend, the latter knew why. He had arranged scores of duels for his acquaintances with great prudence and skill, and was the common refuge of gentlemen in trouble. "'What's the row about Crawley, my boy?' said the old warrior. "'No more gambling business, eh? Like when we shot Captain Marker?' "'It's about my wife,' Crawley answered, turning very red. The other gave a whistle. "'I always said she'd throw you over,' he began. "'and indeed they had laid bets upon it in the barracks, "'but seeing the savage look which Rawdon gave him, "'McMurdo did not go on. "'Is there no other way out of it, old boy?' he continued. "'Is it only suspicion, you know, or letters? "'Or can't you keep it quiet? "'Best not to make any noise about a thing of that sort if you can help it.' "'Thinking of his only finding out now,' The captain thought, remembering a hundred conversations at the mess-table in which Mrs. Crawley's reputation had been torn to shreds. "'There's no way out of it but one,' Rodden replied. "'I found him alone together. I told him he was a liar and a coward, and knocked him down and thrashed him. "'Serve him right,' McMurdo said. "'Who is it?' "'Lord Stane.' "'The deuce! A marquis?' They said he, well, that is, what the devil do you mean? roared Crawley. Did you hear a fellow doubt my wife and didn't tell me, Mac? What the deuce was the good of my telling you what any Tom fool talked about? It was damned unfriendly, Mac, said Rawdon, quite overcome. He covered his face with his hands, which caused the tough old campaigner opposite to wince with sympathy. "'Hold up, old boy. Great man or not, we'll put a bullet in him, damn him. And as for women, they're also. "'You don't know how fond I was of that one,' Rodden said. "'Dammy, I gave up everything I had to her. I'm a beggar because I would marry her. I've pawned my own watch to get her anything she fancied, and she's been making a purse for herself the whole time.' He told McMurdo the story. She may be innocent after all, as she says, his adviser said. Stain has been a hundred times alone with her in the house before. Maybe so, Rodden answered sadly. But this don't look very innocent. He showed the captain the thousand-pound note. This is what he gave her, Mac, and she kept it unknown to me. "'and with this money in the house "'she refused to stand by me when I was locked up.' "'McMurdo admitted that it looked ugly. "'Rawdon sent his servant to Curvin Street "'to check a bag of clothes. "'While he was gone, Rawdon and his companion "'composed a letter to send to Lord Stane. "'It said that Captain McMurdo "'had the honour of waiting upon the Marquis of Stane "'on behalf of Colonel Rawdon Crawley "'to make arrangements for the meeting "'which he had no doubt his lordship would demand "'and which the circumstances of the morning "'had made inevitable. "'Captain McMurdo asked Lord Stane "'to appoint a friend a second "'and desired that the meeting might take place "'with as little delay as possible. "'In a postscript, the cat... <coughs> In a postscript, the captain stated that he had in his possession a banknote for a large amount which the colonel believed was the property of the Marquis of Stain, and was anxious to return to its owner. By the time this note was composed, the captain's servant had returned from Curzon Street, but without the bag of clothes he had been sent for, and with a very puzzled face. "'They won't give him up!' 
he said. There's a regular shinty in the house and everything at sixes and sevens. The landlords took possession. The servants was a-drinking up in the drawing-room. They said, they said you'd gone off with the silver plate, Colonel. One of the servants is off already. And Simpson, who is drunk, says nothing shall go out of the house until his wages is paid. This account gave a little gaiety to a sober conversation. McMurdo laughed at Rawdon's discomfiture. I'm glad the little one isn't at home, Rawdon said, biting his nails. Little Rawdon was just then, one of fifty boys, in the chapel of Whitefriars School, thinking about coming home next Saturday, when his father might take him to the play. He's a regular trump, that boy, the father went on. I say, Mac, if anything goes wrong, you tell him, you know, that I was very fond of him, and, and all that stuff, and, and all of that, and, uh, old chap, give him these gold sleeve buttons. It's all I've got. He covered his face with his dirty hands. Go down and order some breakfast, McMurdo said to his man in a loud, cheerful voice. What do you have, Crawley? Some deviled kidneys and a herring? And Clay, lay out some of my clothes for the colonel. We were always pretty much of a size, Rorden, my boy. Leaving the colonel to dress himself, McMurdo finished his own toilette. This, as he was about to meet a lord, Captain McMurdo performed with particular care. He waxed his mustachios into a state of brilliant polish and put on a tight cravat and a trim buff waistcoat, so that all the young officers in the mess room at breakfast asked if he was going to be married that Sunday. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.